0: Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav, and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express News Show. In this episode, we talk about why the World Health Organization has recommended people to not use artificial sweeteners. We also talk about why a delayed monsoon is not necessarily a reason for concern. But first, we talk about the infamous 1980 Muradabad violence. On the 13th of August, 1980, violent clashes had broken out between the police and a crowd of people who had gathered for Eid prayers in Uttar Pradesh's Muradabad. Over the next few weeks, hundreds of people died in what quickly became one of UP's worst instances of communal violence. And after this happened, a one-man commission was formed to probe the incident. This comprised of Justice MP Saxena Of the Allahabad High Court, his report was submitted in 1983 to the then Congress government, though it was never made public. But now, after nearly 43 years of the incident, the Yogi Adityanath-led UP government has announced that it would table the Saxena report in the state assembly. In this segment, Indian Express's Deepti Mantewari joins us to talk about the incident, its aftermath, and why the Yogi government has decided to table the Saxena report. My colleague Rahil Filippo speaks to him. So,
1: Deeptiman, to begin with, can you talk about what led to the infamous riot that broke out in Moradabad in 1980?
2: On the day of Eid on August 13, 1980, in the Eidgah in Moradabad, there were some anywhere between 50,000 to 70,000 people on that morning offering Eid prayers. And about 200 meters from... The Evgah, there is a Valmiki Basti, basically a colony of Dalits. It is alleged that from this colony, since the Dalits used to rear pigs, one pig strayed into the prayer congregation on the road. And since a pig is considered to be impure in Islam, you know, there was a commotion among the public. About this whole thing and uh, the people started arguing with the police as to you are here to you know maintain law and order and ensure that this goes on peacefully and why have you allowed pigs to enter the prayers the policemen in turn got offended and they told the people that you know guarding against pigs is not a police job and this led to an altercation between police and the public and this soon turned ugly with people pelting stones at the police and within minutes one stone actually hit an SSP rank officer who collapsed to the ground following which the police opened fire from the main gate of the Eidgah, Since there were only two exits, one the main gate from where the firing was coming on and another which led to a narrow by-lane in a colony. A large number of people died in Stampede, a significant number of them being children. And then people got angry and they went to the nearest police jockey. They burned the police chockeye down in which two police constables were killed. And then there was an alleged police reprisal where uh, police pulled out people from their homes and shot them dead is what eyewitnesses say. And uh, several people are still said to be missing.
1: Right. And... Do we have a count of just how many people died during these riots?
2: So the death toll in that entire incident as recorded by the government is only 83. Eyewitnesses put it to anywhere between 300 to 400. And uh, post that immediate incident, you know, the violence continued for a long time. And in a couple of weeks, it turned into Hindu-Muslim riots. And it is said that what started in August through sporadic incidents in and around Muradabad continued till November that year.
1: Right. And Man, right after these riots broke out, what were the steps taken by the then government to probe the incident? Were they able to ascertain why it happened in the first place?
2: First, multiple FIRs were registered in the case, but uh, people say that nothing much came out of them. There was a one-member commission set up by the government of that time, which was a Congress government, ...to investigate the entire incident and prepare a report and submit to the government. This commission was headed by then Alabad High Court Judge M.P. Saxena. It submitted its report with the government in November 1983. However, this uh, report was never made public. It was never tabled in the Assembly. What we know of about the findings of the report is that it uh, squarely blamed Muslims for the violence... It absolved uh, police of uh, almost all responsibility and particularly mentioned one then Muslim League leader, Dr. Shami Ahmed, of having engineered the riots to defame the then state government and to blame it on uh, Dalits and Punjabi Hindus. Right. But
1: do the findings of this report actually align with eyewitness accounts and media reports at the time?
2: Actually, eyewitness accounts and even media reports of that time and even from uh, somebody as uh, Mr. MJ Akbar who was until recently a minister in the Modi government and a BJP MP in the Rajya Sabha. In his reports of that time when he was the editor of the Sunday Weekly, he has recounted that incident as this was a genocide of Muslims committed by a communalized police force. And uh, even in his book, Riot After Riot, he has written about this Muradabad violence and said that this was not a Hindu Muslim riot. This was police particularly targeting Muslims. And then to shift the blame, a week or so later, it was turned into a Hindu Muslim riot. This is what he's written in his reports for the Sunday and in his book. Now, eyewitnesses almost aligned with this kind of an observation. In fact, when uh, the firing started, they actually ran to Hindu homes and several Hindus gave them shelter. And uh, they stayed with the Hindus for several days because they were fearing police reprisals. And they say that uh, there was never a Hindu-Muslim riot. It was only after a week or a couple of weeks that they started hearing of clashes between Hindus and Muslims. So it never started as a Hindu-Muslim riot and they say that almost all the violence was between Muslims and the police. In fact, most of these incidents were not even recorded on paper and there are still scores of people in Muradabad whose kith and kin are missing and so that has never been recorded on, in police records and that is why the death toll is said to be only 83 but because there are so many people missing and they have been missing for 43 years so naturally they are presumed dead Right, and like you mentioned the Saxena report which mainly
1: blamed the Muslim community was never made public but now the Yogi government in UP has said that it wants to table the report in the state assembly Why now after
2: all these years? Well, the UP government is saying that previous governments have not tabled this in the assembly or not made it public because it is not palatable to their politics. And so they have not tabled it and they are going to table it and make it public so that people who have suffered in that violence get a sense of closure.
1: Right. And how do the locals feel about the UP government's decision about tabling this report in the assembly?
2: Actually, most of the people have actually moved on. Even though they have not got justice, they have reconciled to the fact that, you know, so much time has lapsed and there is no hope for justice anymore. So they believe that uh, all of this is being done for political reasons because the report is uh, eventually going to blame Muslims. In fact, the Muslim League leader who the report blames is also dead. So, most people say that no legal recourse is possible because most of the people involved are dead. If there are any policemen who have been accused of anything, they also must be dead. By now, it's been 43 years. So, when there is no legal recourse possible, no justice possible, what is the point of stoking this fire once again and they fear that this might create some sort of a communal tension in Muradabad once again, which they do not want. We also spoke to the Imam of the Eidgah who said that there was no point of this. Hindus and Muslims are living peacefully and he requested that they should be led to live peacefully at this moment because there was no point uh, digging old graves.
0: And next we talk about artificial sweeteners. On Monday the World Health Organization made a recommendation against using artificial sweeteners to lose weight and to prevent lifestyle diseases such as diabetes. This recommendation was based on over 280 studies in which such sweeteners were linked to an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular diseases and mortality in the long run. To know more about this, Indian Express's Anona Dutt joins us. Anona, let's begin by talking about what exactly are artificial sweeteners. How do we define them?
3: So, artificial sweeteners are essentially chemical compounds which mimic the sweet taste that you get from sugar. But sugar has calories, whereas uh, artificial sweeteners do not. So, they are kind of like zero-calorie sweetener that you can have.
0: And for those who might not know, could you explain how something we ingest and something that has a taste have zero calories?
3: So artificial sweeteners, in fact, can be of two types. One is like completely a chemical formula, which basically gives the sweetness. It's it's for the taste. You feel everything is sweet, but it just passes through your system. Your digestive system cannot process it. So there is no calorie. Those are like zero calories. Then there are like uh, certain alcohol-based sweeteners, which are less sweet so if you use those kind of sweeteners you will feel that the product is less sweet but it also has less calories than uh, sugar normally would so some of the uh, things that are available are um, aspartame is like the most common thing that is used which is found in a lot of the uh, you know low calorie options in foods in beverages And um, then there is stevia, which is also commonly consumed by people. But there are uh, several other things like sorbitol, etc. Erythritol. There are several um, artificial sweeteners that can be used. Right. And for
0: a while, at least, artificial sweeteners were mainly used by people who had diabetes. But over time, we have seen that people who just want to consume less calories or go for a quote-unquote healthier option have started using them a fair bit. So, could you talk about this change in consumption pattern?
3: I mean, that's why artificial sweeteners were developed to sort of create a low calorie alternative for people with diabetes so that they could have sweet, but you don't get the calorie problem with that. But artificial sweeteners gaining in popularity, a lot of the food products use it as to create the low calorie options. So, A lot of uh, the sodas you would see would have a diet version, which is what would use these artificial sweeteners. That's why there are zero calories in it. But it still has the sweetener. It has the taste and zero calories. And that's a problem because people end up consuming more of these products.
0: Yeah, because when you're consuming something with sugar, you kind of control yourself thinking, "Okay, I've had something. I should not have more. But when you're consuming something with zero calories, for example, in your head, you're thinking, oh, I've not had any sugar, so I can have more of it.
3: So that is the problem that doctors also say with, say, a diet uh, soda, you end up consuming more. You think, "Okay, if I could have one Coke, I can probably have three diet Cokes and you end up drinking more of it. And now we know that it's not completely risk free. So it's not something without consequences. Another thing is that, and this has been known for a while, the artificial sweetness, you know, the taste is quite sweet and they make you crave for more sweets as well. So that is another reason why, you know, consuming artificial sweetener is not a great thing.
0: Right, and this brings us to the WHO recommendation. Tell us what exactly has the organization said about artificial sweeteners?
3: So the WHO has said that people should not consume artificial sweeteners to try and reduce weight, body mass index, or have a diet which is more suitable to prevent uh, lifestyle diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, etc. And they have based this uh, recommendation on 283 different studies. They have looked at, you know, adult population, children, women what happens uh, when they are consuming these artificial sweeteners. And what they found is that in the short term, yes, it led to weight loss and a lower BMI. But that was mostly because uh, people were already consuming sugars and they replaced it with a low calorie version of sugar. So it went down. But then these studies also linked the artificial sweeteners With increase in BMI in the long run, increase in the risk of type 2 diabetes, increase in the risk of cardiovascular diseases and cancers, exactly what people are trying to prevent. So there's no benefit of consuming these things in the long run. And the short term, uh, you know, loss in weight, it doesn't offset any of the risks.
0: And what is the reason that the WHO has made this recommendation only for healthy people, as in people without diabetes? What is the reason behind that?
3: So here we've had a divided opinion so far with some doctors uh, saying that, you know, diabetics do have higher risk of, say, a heart attack or a stroke than the general population. So if the artificial sweeteners are in fact linked to higher incidences or like higher risk of these diseases, then shouldn't diabetics also stop consuming the artificial sweeteners? Whereas people on the other side say it does give the benefit of consuming fewer calories to the diabetics who should anyway be restricting their sweet intake, whether it's from sugars or from artificial sweeteners, they shouldn't be consuming too much of it. So, once in a while, in moderation, consuming artificial sweetener they think should be more beneficial than consuming sugars. And, you know, like having one or two pellets of these uh, normally available artificial sweeteners, if you have that with tea or coffee, one or two a day, some people think that's okay.
0: Okay, so for people who are listening to this segment and who might be consuming artificial sweeteners on a regular or a semi-regular basis, what should they take away from this? Should they just stop having artificial sweeteners?
3: So, I mean, of course, if you're having diet soda, replacing it with like a full sugar version doesn't help, of course. But uh, in general population level, we have to cut down the level of sweets things that we are consuming, and we have known this for a while that you know the more sweet you have, you have obesity, which leads to insulin resistance, which leads to diabetes. So there's a need to cut down on sugars, but replacing it with artificial sweetener is not the way to go. What you have to do, and what uh, WHO has also said that from an early age you should reduce sweet things in the diet your diet should be such that it shouldn't have sweet things and when you're craving sweet things then you can have the sweeter fruits instead of you know having a cake or whatever like a dessert
0: and in the end we talk about the monsoons earlier this week the IMD that is the India Meteorological Department said that the monsoon will arrive late this year And this is often a concern especially for the agricultural sector that relies a lot on the monsoon arriving on time. And also a delay often makes people worry that this would lead to insufficient rainfall. So to find out how concerned we should be, my colleague Utsha Sermon speaks to Indian Express's Amitabh Sinha.
4: So Amitabh, the monsoon typically arrives on the 1st of June on the coast of Kerala. But according to the IMD, it's going to arrive late this time. Should we be concerned about that?
5: Not at all. The onset of monsoon does not usually happen on 1st of June, even though the normal date is 1st of June. If you look at previous years, at least in the last 10-15 years that I looked at the onset dates, only two or three occasions did it actually happen on 1st of June. It has happened a couple of days earlier, a few days later. This time, it's likely to happen on 4th there is an error margin in the prediction, so it might even be delayed a couple of days later.
4: Right, and even though many worry about it, you have written that the date of the onset is not really an indicator of the monsoon's performance. So, can you tell us why that is the case?
5: So, very often it's discussed that if monsoon gets delayed, it's not a good monsoon or that rainfall during the monsoon season might not be good. There is actually no correlation. The a delayed onset of monsoon is only a starting problem. It's just about a delay in the start. That's all. It doesn't have any bearing whatsoever on the rainfall that would happen during the monsoon season, you know, the quantity of rainfall and also the distribution of rainfall. It has absolutely no bearing on those. The monsoon, you know, the performance of monsoon or how we judge a good or bad rainfall monsoon season is by the amount of rainfall that happens during the monsoon season and also how uniform the distribution has been, how well distributed the rainfall has been, both in terms of time as well as in terms of its regional variability, whether most of the regions of the country have got good rainfall, have got timely rainfall. So that's how a good monsoon is judged, not by when it began or when the onset happened.
4: And Amitabh, speaking of rainfalls, you have also written that in the last 14 years, uh, that is since 2009, there were only three instances where India witnessed below normal rainfall. But you said that this does not paint an accurate picture of the monsoon's performance. So could you elaborate on this point?
5: Right. So again, that is one number that we lay a lot of stress on and uh, probably unnecessarily. We lay a lot of emphasis on whether the country as a whole received normal rainfall during the monsoon season. What the IMD definition says that if it is anything less than 96%, that means it is deficient, it's not normal. The normal range is between 96% to 104% of the normal. But beyond this one single number that is tracked very keenly, at least in the media, What is more important is how good the rainfall has been over the entire country. So what we have been seeing increasingly is that the variability in terms of rainfall has been rising. One, of course, because of climate change. But even otherwise, there has been an increased variability in the rainfall so that what is happening is that there are some areas which are getting lots of rainfall. There are other areas which are not getting sufficient rainfall. And yet, when you look at the normal, whether India has received normal rainfall or not, it averages out over a long period of time. And you might get, you know, during the monsoon season, it got normal rainfall. But then, no, it masks a lot of regional variations. So as you said, during the last 14 years, on only three occasions, India did not get a normal rainfall or below normal rainfall. But if you look at the regional variation, Then during those same 14 years, the northeastern part of the country, they got below normal rainfall for nine out of those 14 years. Also, the other thing that I did not mention is the variations in time. A lot of rains is happening on very few days. So it's not that during this four month period, the entire four month period is wet. It is not. It never was. But there are a few rainy days and then you have dry spells in between. What is happening is that these rainy days are becoming fewer and fewer and the dry spells are getting longer and longer. What that means is that you have very concentrated rainfall happening within a few days. And that is the reason why we see very these events of extreme rainfalls happening increasingly. Every year we have those events and that leads to the kind of events like urban flooding you know, more broad flooding in larger areas that we see every year. So there have been extreme rainfall events and the instances of extreme rainfall events have been increasing. So even in terms of the temporal variation, the rainfall is becoming more and more erratic. Right. So
4: basically what you are saying is that uh, we need to look at different regions of India and how much rainfall each of them have got and uh, for how long. To get a better sense of the monsoon's performance.
5: Yeah, you know that one number when we say India has had normal rainfall this season or the previous season, that does not convey the entire picture. It's worthwhile to look at the regional distribution of rainfall and also how the rainfall happened in time as well because if it doesn't happen at the right time most of the rainfall doesn't say supposing June or July are completely dry and then we get huge amount of rainfall in August and September as has happened a couple of years ago even while the total number of rainfall is probably the same the benefits of that rainfall do not accrue fully because you know it completely skips the sowing season and your agriculture gets completely affected, right? Your agriculture production goes down. Similarly, during August and September, if you get a huge amount of rainfall, then you have no instance of flooding at many places. So how that rainfall is happening, what is the regional distribution? What is the temporal distribution of rainfall? That decides how good or bad the rainfall has been, not just the overall number and certainly not the onset date of the monsoon over Kerala.
0: You were listening to Three Things by The Indian Express. Today's show was edited and mixed by Suresh Pawar and produced by Utsha Sermon, Rahil Filippos and me, Shashank Bharkav. If you like the show, then do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at indianexpress.com.